but I don't normally do this, but I wanted to come in real quick before we kick off today's podcast and just apologize. Um, the last uh, about 10, 15 minutes or so of this episode, the audio gets really wonky. Um, I'm sorry, I had a recording error that, that popped up. And so I'm thankful that uh, our friend Caleb was able to pull the remaining audio from our video file. But um, it is a little, little problematic at times just to, to hear clearly what's being said. But I did think it would be best just to even give you this subpar audio um, to really just capture the remaining bits of our conversation. So again, I'm sorry uh, as that the audio is less than ideal at the end here, but hopefully you're able to still just hear and understand our conversation as we continue to work through these things. So yeah, all right, one of the episodes for today. All right, we are recording. Um, you say committed. You say now we're live. live. Oh, now we're live. Just because I said you say committed. You say committed, I say come on. <laughs> come on. Show, show me a box and I will <laughs> climb right out of it. <laughs> not, not all boxes. You had an imagination as a kid. True. Yeah. It didn't stay a box for long, though. <laughs> as boxes should. <laughs> what so, are we talking about exactly, Well, Kamar? so last time was segregation. This time we're going to talk about my least favorite historical black leader. Oh, man. Yes, this, I qualified I, I from out of, out of, out of gates. I he did. does have re- redeeming qualities. A- after the last episode, you said we don't always agree. I feel like this is one of those topics that there's not going to be agreement on. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Okay. What, do you already do you have an opinion of Booker T. Washington? No. Okay, so you might agree with me. I'll you probably have, take the opposite of whatever you take. Uh, <laughs> you have no opinion of Booker T. I do. I do have an opinion. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. so I've read. I've read up from slavery. Yeah. I've read mm-hmm. of some of his controversies. Mm-hmm. Some of Kamar's perspective on that. You've, yeah. you've been berated many times by my view of him. Yes, but I, I have not. <laughs> I would not say that I have read widely enough. Gotcha. To consider it an informed opinion. Yeah. So this is the Booker T. Washington, yes. the founder of Tuskegee Institute. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and he is very much so a leader, um, a historical leader. And I will say my opinion of him is formed less from what he wrote and more from what he was trying to do. Right. Um, mine actually comes from a true philosophical disagreement with him. Mm-hmm. I disagree wholeheartedly yeah. with his philosophy on how to deal with the ethnic question that his generation faced and my generation still faces to mm-hmm. a different degree. Um, yeah. And that's where mine comes from. It's not, right. that, not that he was a bad human being. I yeah. think that from everything I've observed about him, he was an honorable man as far as how he lived his life. He right. was not a hypocrite. He that's was consistent. Right. He said what he believed and he believed it thoroughly. Right. Um, all those things I, I, I say are true. And in fact, I have no reason to doubt even him being a member of the body of Christ. Like yeah. all those things. Yeah. My issue with him and why I say least favorite has everything to do with his philosophy right. and, and what I view as the repercussions thereof. Now, you know, I, I tend to agree with you, but I think the only way that I can do that without without blinking an eye is because of where we are in history now. I can yeah. look backwards and say he was wrong. And so I can Monday morning Monday morning quarterback Booker T. Washington, but I don't know if I would be 100% in that same camp if I was in that day and time. Yeah. Because it sounded really, really good. Yeah. Well, along those lines, let's go to page 118. We are going to do an extended an extended reading here for a little bit um because i think that what you're saying there richard is is a point it's so easy for us to sit now and look back on history and say you were dumb um and i think what would be better to do is say was there was there a contemporary Mm. who looked across and not back and said you're dumb right (laughs) 
And there was. And there was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of my most favorite <laughs> <laughs> historical <laughs> black leaders. <laughs> um, yeah. And so what you have here is like that one stop. Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. I realize, like you say, Du Bois. Du Bois. It's a debatable thing. I lean towards the French pronunciation, du as Bois. I do with my own last name, which is why I say Roche mm-hmm. and why I say Du Bois. Du Bois. So, but it's, if you say Du Bois, whatever. It doesn't hurt my feelings. Um, so you have, it says, two distinct visions of the black future envisioned at the dawn of the 20th century turned on the answer to that question question so the question is what is the question right it's kind of like mm-hmm. when we're doing when we're expositing scripture right and we say mm-hmm. therefore there is now and we're like well what wait, was the therefore, therefore huh yeah. huh what's and so the question is what is this question they're facing right the question is what should black people do mm-hmm. in the face of this oppression in the face of these oh, we talked about last time these systems that are being constructed right what should their response be should their response be forget you people i'm an equal treat me like such or or answer or should your response be, well, we're going to find a way to navigate as best we can in a corrupt and fallen world and just make do? Right. That's, really, that's really the question being faced is, should I respond by standing up, holding my ground, shoulders back? Or should I respond by just giving in right. and making the best I can? Um, and Washington or, and, or, or is there a third way? Just saying. Well, I, the question that Glazier's dealing with uh-huh. is, but was that possible? Yeah. Basically, could they... Uh, make their way through their mm-hmm. own agency. Was that possible amid a regime of social inequality that few black people were willing to challenge for fear of economic reprisal or the eruption of personal or collective violence? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that way of stating again, it's 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 got a few more words maybe than necessary. Yeah. But is it possible for a black person in this context to improve, mm-hmm. to grow, to uh, improve their standing in society? Uh, in the face of everything, all these pressures yeah. that were coming against and them. do it and do it by standing yeah. tall as opposed to by by Correct. giving into the yeah. paternalistic leanings. Yeah. Um, well, you say a third option. I think that it. I feel, anyways, it's fair to say that for black people, in of themselves, there was no third option. I can see you could say there's a third option of maybe white people responding differently or government responding. Like I can see that there could be other options outside of an internal black response. But I think within black America, there really were only those two choices was either we shut up and take it and try and make do or we don't shut up and take it and we stand up. Right. Um, and those are the only options available to them. Um, you could say, well, you could leave the country. Well, yeah. as we established, that Garvey. takes money. Yeah. You can't necessarily just leave the country. Um, that's why Garvey didn't wasn't successful because it's right. like, how are you going to leave? Yeah. Well, you need money. Well, how are you going to get that money? Go back to options one and two. He did try to raise <laughs> right. money, though. Yeah. And- he kind of failed with that. So, so, so this is this was their question. So, so Booker T. Washington emphasized racial conciliation without overtly challenging the regime of racial hierarchy and social inequality embedded in segregation. That was Washington's approach. Was let's to quote the great poet Rodney King: "Can we all just get along?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that pretty much was his entire pro- approach. Yeah, basically, there is systemic racism. Let's try to work within that system and do the best we can. Yeah, let's not let's not fight about it. Let's not argue about it. Yeah. Let's not let's just get along and we'll be all right. Let's and give what they take us and try to do the best. Yeah, and so it says here going down. It says he em- emphasized accommodating black life to the social and political realities of race, an acceptance of white domination, and black quiescence in the face of the denial of civil rights. That was a large part of how he did it was like I said, I, I'm oversimplifying it, but largely a shut up and take it. Just, yeah. just, and, and some people say, well, this is not what Martin Luther King Jr. Did no, because he did a shut up, but don't take it. Yeah. More or less. 
And um, that, that was actually the third way that I was talking about. Yeah. Instead yeah. of, you know, just kind of kowtowing, I think the word was in the, yeah. the last mm-hmm. one, and instead of kowtowing to the white overlords, kowtowing to the system, saying this is wrong, but we are going to work within the peaceful means at our disposal mm-hmm. to express why it's wrong. Instead yeah. of a militant response, mm-hmm. it is that, that third way of saying this is not right, but we're going to work within it to show you that it's not right. Yeah. Well, I think that Jim Crow was still bad in the 50s and 60s. Right. But I think part of why King could have that option and they didn't back then was because of the level of violence. Um, essentially, for you to stand up and even if you shut up but you didn't take it, that was violent. Right. That, that was considered in that time period in the early 1900s. Um, that was violent resistance for a black person to yeah. not take it because you were going to go to jail or die. Yeah, I mean that it that was, was going to precipitate violence. Yeah, yes. well, but also that was perceived as violence on the half yeah. on behalf of the black because per- a black person for a black person to stand up and not take it was yeah. threatening. Yes, so that was that was defined as violent yeah. black behavior back then, mm-hmm. yeah. um, wrongfully so. But that is, and that's something you can even see hints of that even today when people talk about police violence and things like that. And they're trying to understand why do people respond the way they do? Mm -hmm. Well, because, and we're going to get into some of these other things in the next episode on lynching, but you still see shadows of that of, well, he didn't, he didn't give in. It's like, dude, he was on the ground crying for his mom. Yeah. But he looked at me. Any resistance could be considered threatening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so that was, that was the atmosphere. And so in that sense too, you could say, well, Washington, you're not wrong. In an atmosphere such as that, where to just stand up is considered violent, then, I mean, if you like breathing, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it goes on to say, support for black common schools and industrial training while directing black youth away from higher education. This was, this was what he looked at. Um, and even like the Tuskegee Institute, it's, it's a university, it's a school, but it is not a school like the school I went to. I went to Prairie View University. So you had black schools that were about, we're going to make doctors and lawyers and, and politicians. Yeah. Washington's like, no, we're going to make electricians yeah. and plumbers. Mm-hmm. We're going to make, you know, maybe a nurse, but probably yeah. more like a nurse's aide. Um, Middle we're, class. We're going we're gonna to make these highly skilled, highly intelligent workers, um, but we don't want to go too far now. Because if we go too far, yeah. that's threatening. That's, yeah. that's aggressive. That's violent. That's not, let's, just, let's just go a little bit and call it a day. We don't want to get too um, uppity. Yeah. Um, and this is versus Dubois, which offered a very different vision, it says. Um, and then you have a, a, a quote from him. He says, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. He rejected Washington's program of black submission to white domination in favor of an assertive push for political power and civil rights, as well as a relentless challenge to the continuation of physically damaging acts of discrimination flowing from social inequality. He also advocated for higher education. So again, you can see, I'm very biased, obviously. Me with all my way too many degrees. It was obvious which way I was going to go. Um, but even as a little kid, like, I mean, I remember my, my parents gave these to me they said read both these books right these are the these are the main views that we have as black americans as as intelligent intellectual black americans pretty much you're gonna have to choose one of these two camps kamar which which camp are you going to be in my parents didn't make me choose but i always resonated with dubois and his idea of the talented 10th especially and the idea that mm-hmm. there are people who if you have ex- if you have a lot of talents if you have a lot of ability if you can read really good and go to school is easy for you it is your duty to society and your people to do everything you can to be the very best you can be yeah. at all times to move everybody up. Um, excellence is meant to bring everybody up, not for you to hide it for your own self-survival, but you go out there and you be as excellent as you can be for the sake of everybody's good. And that's where we get the idea of the black elite. Yeah. They help to bring everybody up. Yeah. 
So the thing about, you know, the average person probably doesn't know a big deal about the difference between Booker T. Washington, W.E.D., Du Bois, mm. or Du Bois. But you can say Du Bois, it's okay. Du Bois. I yes. like Du Bois. Okay. Yeah, you're a Du Boiser. So I'm a Du Boiser, <laughs> Du Boisiac. Okay, so... But the thing about it is, is why were there? Why was this this debate between the two, and why was one favored over the other? Mm-hmm. And I think it's you know maybe it's easy to conceive, but the idea is that because Booker T. he really didn't force the hand of white people as much as W. E. B. Du Bois did, mm-hmm. and so because of that, there was a lot more support thrown at Booker T. I mean, he would sit with presidents. He would meet with, mm-hmm. you know, universities. He would meet, and he was a great fundraiser. Yeah. I mean, he would get money thrown at him. That's how he got his, his college started. Yeah. People would just give him money because he was that that moderate who really wasn't pushing for too much. And in his thought, he was incrementally getting closer and closer to that elusive goal of equality. But he would do it in such a way as that it didn't push white people too far to anger them or to shake them. And so because of that, he solicited a lot of support. Yeah. I mean, white people loved Booker T. Washington. And because of his his clout, because of his name recognition, he would get to speak in, in anywhere he wanted to speak. He could yeah. speak in the White House. He could speak in any university he wanted. And because of his reputation, he solicited a lot of support from black people in the U.S. Yeah. And so there were a lot of people that were more for him than for W.E.D. Du Bois. Yeah. And so why we're talking about this, why he's in this book, is because an interesting part of history of Hopkinsville is Washington came to Hoptown. Yeah. I mean, that could be a movie right there, right? But Washington came. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Washington comes to Hoptown. <laughs> but I mean, but he, he did. He, he came because Hopkinsville was, was an actual rather influential and important part of black America. Yeah. Something that, again, that I didn't realize till I, I lived here. He went um, to Guthrie first. And then he yeah, came. but I mean, this this was a huge, yeah. important, because you had such a huge black, large black population mm-hmm. um, in what was a decent-sized city until Clarksville grew, essentially. Right. Um, like it was it was important. This was a place worth stopping in. Right. And so in 1909, he came through here. Um, and that's why he's in the book. And that's why we're going to talk more about him, because the boy didn't come through here. <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe he should have. Yeah, maybe he should have. Maybe if he had, things would be different here. Maybe. I mean, because it's I think that it's obvious. What if? Well, no, it's not. To me, it's obvious that the people, the black people of Hopkinsville, didn't just listen to him when he came to town. I feel like they really absorbed his way of looking at things right. and have lived that out. And what we see now is the natural result of if you stick with the Washington plan. Wow. So um, you think it's his fault? Well, I don't like Washington. You know, you know, I don't like him for. I've, I've never hidden this. I've, I no, led with that's it. That's true. <laughs> so, but, but <laughs> there but, are no secrets here. But do you think the Washington <laughs> ideas permeated into Black Hopkinsville and stayed here? Yeah. Or did his message resonate with Hopkinsville because that was already the perspective that they had? It's not like that he came and his, you know, his his rock in the pond is what generated the ripple. No, the ripples were going, and his yeah. speech just kind of hit the. Yeah, top no, of I, I don't think he started it. I think that yeah. it's more like it was it was something that was there. He came in, they're like, yeah, let's keep this going, and then they just kind of just and they stayed in that direction. Yeah, they kept moving. Like it was like you know an object in motion stays right. in motion, and because and the African American population here was already kind of lukewarm. Yeah. Yeah, it, it wasn't too, you know, it wasn't too violent. It wasn't too this. It was kind of 
even kill. They had the numbers, but they didn't vote even during, you know, because we went through Reconstruction and we didn't see, you know, an overwhelming amount of the black vote changing things. No. Stayed pretty much the same. Well, I mean, and so when he's coming to town, you were talking about how white people listen to him. Right. Uh, 121. Washington's standing among white people was apparent from the outset. <laughs> like, like you're saying. Uh, Judge Price, the son of a slaveholder, said, quote, I don't know what he is going to talk about, but I am willing to endorse anything he says before he says it. <laughs> That's a huge deal yeah. for a black man, 1909, going on a tour, trying to talk about improving the black race. I want to start a school. Give me your money. And for white people in power, again, you know, descendant of slave, to say, ah, yeah, whatever he says, listen to him. I already know it's going to be good. He was a safe black person in the eyes of white America. And, okay. So, Richard, I'm going to make this personal about, about you and I for a second. Brandon, I'll just sit here and watch. Brandon, feel free, to, Go ahead. feel free to chime in on what you think about, about, about this question and all this. But is that a fear that you have? What's because that? That to, to, be, to be seen as the safe black guy. To be perceived. To be perceived. I think that's a kind you know, we talked about, I think it was in the last episode, about the wearing the mask. Yeah. You know, it's like, can I be unapologetically black? Doesn't mean I'm not going to be who I am, but does it mean that I can release the full weight of frustration or the full weight of my thought knowing that it could potentially um, hurt people's feelings or that people would see me in a different way. And so I think, I think there's a couple of things that balance that the regenerated heart that I have Mm -hmm. makes me care about the concerns of others. If you had known me before Christ, I would not care. (laughs) I'd I'd probably do it to see what you thought, but, but because also in the station in life as a pastor, I care about the, you know, the people that are in front of me, mm-hmm. regardless if they're black or white. I, I care about the, the words that I speak or the message that we have and how it's going to be considered or taken. And, I, you know, in public speaking, they say that's knowing your audience. Yeah. So I want to make sure that my audience receives what I say more than they care about what I think about them or what I think about them, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So I think to some degree, yes, I think some degree, yeah, I have to because I don't want to act in my flesh. Yeah. Because I could just say what I want to in my flesh and I could feel really, really good about what I just said. Yeah. But then I could completely miss the message and the ministry, which would be the people in front of me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will say for me, it is a it is a struggle that I, I deal with of that fear of being essentially like I said, pigeonholed as safe black guy. Um, one, because of my biased view, how I feel about Washington. Um, but also because I do see that there's this, there's this loss of utility in it. Mm-hmm. Um, because once you're, you're, I mean, Fresh Prince Bel-Air, I think Carlton. Right. <laughs> like, C1. Right. Carlton was an amazing character. Uh, I mean, and there was so much complexity to him as an individual. There was. But at the end of the day, there were so many things that he could never do. And then his cousin comes along. Right. And he can just walk in the room and all of a sudden he can drive the conversation forward. He can he can bring about all kinds of necessary change, as it were, because he'll be heard right. because he's not the safe guy. That's right. um, and so that's, the, that's something that I, I do wrestle with myself is like, how do I, like you said, how do I act within the Holy Spirit of being this new creation that actually cares about what people think? Yeah. He's not just being aggressive for the sake of causing controversy, yeah. while at the same time not being pigeonholed as safe black guy. Yeah. So that now essentially if I say something that isn't safe, it's going completely unheard. Yeah. Um, 
It's 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 a it's a balancing thing. And I and I think there's a reality of like there are gospel issues that I could care less what you think. Mm-hmm. There are gospel issues that I I don't care if it makes you cry. I'm going to say it because it needs to be said. Now there are some non-gospel issues, some social issues that I care about that I I I, I pause mm-hmm. before I speak because I think the relevance of it doesn't matter and it doesn't hold as much weight as those gospel issues. Yeah. Like everything that goes on, especially as ministers of the gospel, everything we hear in the news, we have thoughts, we have feelings, we have preferences, we have you know things that we want to say, but at the same time, it's not wise to comment on everything I feel yeah. because it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But the gospel issues, the word of God, it matters. Yeah. So, to bring you in on this, Brandon. As a black, no, I'm joking. You're not a black guy. <laughs> you could be. Hey, but what if you were? How about you be an honorary black man for like five minutes? And I, what, I don't think it works that way. It doesn't. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I was going to say uh, instead. Correct um, me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I don't but think it, it works that it way. Could, I want. I want, right. I want to bring you into this to make it more relation relational in the yeah. sense of. Um, I think that there are very few things like there are things that we experience as black men that we could say our experience is unique and how we walk through it, mm-hmm. but it is not unique because it is a common human experience. There you go. Um, and so I want to I bring you into it and say, you know, make it relational. While you may not have that issue of safe black guy, mm-hmm. um, do you struggle with that as far as being safe pastor guy? I do. Um, I don't think it's to the same level mm-hmm. uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I think just, for example, my tenure here at Edgewood, when I was here before as an associate pastor there was a sense in which I was very concerned mm-hmm. with fitting in. And yeah. I like reading, and I like talking about ideas. Yeah. And not everybody likes reading, and not everybody likes talking about ideas. Yeah. And so I kind of squashed that and almost went, you know, in an attempt to relate, yeah. to become safe book guy. <laughs> you know, like like that was an attempt to try to fit in with what I perceived to be the culture. Not only did I did that hamper then my relationship with people because I was trying to be something I wasn't, I, I think that hampered the culture because there, there's people here who like reading. Yeah. And they like talking about ideas. And so for me to cram them all into this one category yeah. wasn't fair of me. And so I, I do think about that when it comes to this context is not only do we not want Kamar to be safe black guy Kamar yeah. for Kamar's sake, but for the church's sake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, for too long, I think the church in America, mm-hmm. uh, by and large, and I'm painting with an overly broad brush here, for too long, our approach to multi-ethnic congregations, our approach to cultural diversity has been, we are okay with you being a different color, yeah. but we need you to fit yeah, assimilate culturally. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's okay if your skin is black, so long as your talk and your conduct is white. Yeah. Right. Right. And that doesn't help the church. Yeah. That doesn't express anything of the diversity that we see in the mm. New Testament, that we see being the vision for what the church mm. could be. Yeah. And, and so I think that's the point where it doesn't just hurt the individual who's trying to assimilate, who's trying to conform, it ultimately hurts the culture or the church or the society where that assimilation is attempting because you're missing out on the biggest benefit of diversity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what's wild is I think that that might be scary to white people and exciting to people that are not white. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember which historian is a a Christian historian 
who's writing nowadays, and he talks about that, about um, the, the insults, essentially, that racism has done on white America, too. Um, that it is, it is a sword with two edges. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are things, and I think that's what you're talking about. If, if we fill white churches with safe black pastors for the sake of diversity, um, it is hurting the white church. Yeah. Um, because what they need is not safe pastors. What they need are authentic, real pastors, mm. um, regardless of their skin color. And, and so that is the thing, though, that is true, that this, this relationship thing is actually hurting white America, too. Because this is why sometimes where, say, say Richard has a bad day, um, and he goes and he walks in and he's no longer putting on the white voice. Mm-hmm. And he's not wearing the, the, the white friendly T-shirt. He's wearing the, I'm an angry black man today, leave me alone shirt. Right. <laughs> um, wait, wait, you have that shirt? <laughs> I, I probably do. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like, and he walks in, and and, and then and he has that in, interaction, and then somebody's like so taken off guard. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for me professionally, I dealt with that when I was working in foster care and I was running an office. Um, I had a lot of staff individuals, and I'll be honest, they were mostly white women. Um, and it just boggled my mind. I'm like, I'm married to a white lady. I know how to talk to white ladies. Like, I mean, granted, they're not Southern white ladies, but still, like, I mean, like, aren't all white like, ladies the same? Like, like, <laughs> but like, but it, it took me, it took me forever to begin to start to realize that what I was dealing with was that my wife, she is, she is okay with the idea of me being a man who has power, who has, who has emotions and feelings. That sometimes I might speak in a direct and monotone way, and that does not mean I'm going to kill her. Rather, that means that I'm today I'm in a direct and monotone manner like she's used to that. And so I was already so accustomed to the idea that, yeah, I mean, I can just be me that I did not know how to deal with that with my staff. So I had a lot of staffing issues mm-hmm. where I had to learn essentially talking about the mask or, or being yeah. safe. I had to essentially learn how to talk to people who weren't ready for right. me to be authentically 100 percent black because they took that as threatening. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't that they were over. I'm not trying to say these were horrible racist women who were out mm-hmm. to get me. They just had no cultural context. They had no lens by which to say when a black guy speaks this way, it's not threatening. It's not violent. It's not unsafe. He's being human. This is the downside of all of these safe images is yeah. that it leaves white people ill-equipped to have authentic relationships with black people. You know, one of the things you told me a couple of years ago was, and, and it, it took me a while to think about it because I didn't like it at the time. <laughs> But it was one of the worst things to happen is for white people to have the one black friend. Yeah. To have the one black friend that they get along with, that's maybe achieved, you know, educationally. He's, you know, he or she is, you know, maybe a higher economic level. And then because that one black friend then becomes the baseline for every other person in the community. We'll see if so-and-so can do it. Why can't, why do they have to be like that? Why can't they be like him? And and then it begins to justify so many different stereotypes and so many um, um, prejudiced thoughts about the rest of society because of that one black friend. And in reality, everybody's an individual. And so you can't put everybody in one little box and expect everybody to act the same way. And I think I don't think that uh, by and large, I don't think, well, maybe they do. Uh, African-Americans probably do that to some degree to mm-hmm. all white people. But by and large, everybody should be viewed as, as an individual. Yeah. And so I, I, I finally get that point. That, that was and that was it not my a couple of years, I, I, but he's, he's again, with you now. I didn't invent it. I read it in the book that, and it made me angry when I first read it. But then he presented the date and I'm like, You're, and it wasn't Wendell Berry to make it. No, it wasn't. It wasn't Wendell Berry. But to make it all the more relevant for us at the church level. Yeah. Um, I do think this is, so that same book, um, actually one of our congregants is borrowing that book right now because um, they wanted to read more because of this. They said, I want to read more. I'm like, I want to learn more. I'm like, you know what? 
you can read, you can borrow these books, you can read these books that really delve into a deeper, I still don't like, I don't agree with everything these books say. That book right there and the one we're talking about, that really messed me up and I didn't like it because it's written by two white guys and I'm like, what? But, <laughs> but the data they present, because it's just, it's data. I'm like, right. they're not wrong. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things they talked about um, is, this is a real thing, document, the division between black and white Christians mm -hmm. um, in America, um, which is really sad. But if you don't know this, anybody who's listening or watching doesn't know this, um, studies have been done, Barna Group, which is really good on studying things, have done this as well. Um, atheistic studies, like it doesn't matter who studies it. When you study the political and, and ideological breakdown of Christians in America and just people in America, the largest ideological divide that exists with, between groups in America is between white and black Christians. Mm -hmm. White atheists and black Christians are closer together mm. than white and black Christians. Wow. You know, I mean, black, black atheists and, and white Christians, like literally it's the, for some reason being in Christ makes us more divided across the white black line than anything else in this country. And I think part of it has to do exactly what we're talking about is mm -hmm. that because we've, we have these places and they come in and they are that, that safe person putting on that mask, putting on that front, it leads to this false view of us and themselves. And, they, and it broadens the division instead of, instead of lessening it. Wow, so could you say the difference between the two is black and white? It's even big. It's even bigger than that. I mean, I know that's funny, but <laughs> the sad thing is that, like, it just when I first, I'm like, this is really. But I mean, you, right. you see it's some sad. elections. It's really. I sad. mean, elections are a great example of that. When you yeah. see people campaigning, um, and I'm not saying what side I'm on on things because I know between the three of us, we're all over the map on everything except for mm -hmm. the gospel and Christ and yeah. the importance of life. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> like, like, so, but but that's the that's the thing you'll see. Like, they'll say the Christian vote is this way, mm -hmm. and it's like. No, the Christian white vote is this way. Right. And what are you saying right. to all the black and brown and Asian and you're Christians? Christian. You're, you're yeah. literally calling them non-Christian right exactly. now to their face because they don't vote the way you do. So to see black Christians and white Christians to come together, it really is a hand of God. Yeah. 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 You got, you got to get that? <laughs> we should all listen in on this one. No, I'm just <laughs> Hey, girl. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, but so okay, so back to back to to Washington because I do want to continue to make him look like a horrible person. Wait, okay, wait before we get there. <laughs> okay, before we before we make him look like a horrible person, <laughs> I just I felt like the on page one where is it one twenty two, uh, uh -huh. first full paragraph there. I do have another one there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I think that that is the statement that. I would say, okay, this is not a considered opinion, but I appreciated Glazier stating, Washington's goals and the goals of those who were with Dubois, mm -hmm. Du Bois, uh, <laughs> however you want to say it. Mm -hmm. uh, You're from Idaho, so you can say Du Bois because... Yes, we don't... Boise. That's, yeah. That's right. Well, and so I was actually... <laughs> I, I find myself distracted quite frequently in these podcasts, and one of those that was distracting me was, okay, hey, his name means of the trees. W-E-B, of the trees. Interesting. Another reason I must that's love how him. Boise, that's, how, that's how Boise got its name. That's, see, another reason I love him, because I love trees. Anyways, but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so the this statement that they were they were looking for the same thing. Mm -hmm. They wanted the same thing. It was not a disagreement of end. Washington mm -hmm. would have never said this segregation that is taking place right now ought to be this way. What was your quote? Segregation now, yes. then, now, and forever. Yeah. yeah, no, that's not his point. But he yeah. just disagreed on the methodology yeah. of how to get there. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so he's 
I, I just don't, I don't know. I feel like I need to defend him from you, but I don't know why. I don't know why either, because, okay, same page. This is, this is Glazier talking, who is biased, yes, because yeah. he's a human being, and we all right. are. Such publicly expressed sentiments, optimistic to the point of fantasy, and devoid of any hint of recrimination or demand, guaranteed his support among white people. Like Judge Price, who said, I don't know what he's going to say, but I'm all for it. Yeah. 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 And so, and that's, and that's kind of my view, too, is like, it's like dude, man, you're, you're fantasy world. Like, yeah. That's not going to work. I mean, you you have you you have the right ends in mind, yeah. but your means will never get there, dude. And see, that's the thing where I look <laughs> back in history, though. It's like you know what he said. It made a lot of sense if you just work hard, if you try hard, if you just give it enough time and just put your head down and put your hand on the plow, keep moving forward, just be a good citizen. Eventually, these white folks are going to come around and they're going to accept you, and we're going to have equality and we're going to have everything that we want. We just have to take our time and just be good citizens. And that did not work. And I think it's because he did not, for whatever reason, maybe, maybe he had, maybe he came from a really good plantation. I don't know. But I think his view of white Southerners, white people in general in America, but especially yeah. white Southerners, was just plain wrong. Um, quote from when he was in Hoptown. Mm-hmm. My favorite. You knew I was going <laughs> to I know you're where you're page going. Page 125. Top of page 125. This is when he was in Hoptown. He's sitting there and he's talking about how great Hopkinsville is, mm-hmm. um, how happy he is to be here. And he says, we have here in proportion to their number, probably the very highest type of Negroes to be found anywhere in the country. All right. That sounds great. Cool. You're coming to the black yeah, folks. Yeah. Go Washington. Kind. Yeah. We're the highest kind. Then he goes <laughs> and say, this is very largely due to the fact that we also have the very highest type of white people. He was a politician. He was playing. <laughs> you guys both apologize sides. for him big time. <laughs> yeah, he was a politician. I mean, he's 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 reading his crowd. He's knowing his audience, and he's looking around. He says, "We got white and black people. Okay, we got the best black. people. We got the best white. This is the best place on the planet." <laughs> but here's the thing: is his thoughts. That's the thing. At at the end of the day, they didn't work because if you fast forward another 30, 40, 50 years, mm-hmm. nothing changed, yeah. and actually, things got worse. Yeah. Well, I, I take issue with him calling them the highest ki- type of white people just because what we've learned so far about the white people of Hopkinsville. Like, I think, that's a, I think that's an unfair thing to say about, like, you should be offended as a white person, Brandon, that he would say that these were the highest kinds of white people. Are you because, saying like, Brandon is the highest? No, I'm not saying you are, but I'm just saying, like, I mean, like, the, the, the 30% white DNA I have in me is offended by this. Like, like we can do better than that. Washington, how dare you set the bar so low for whiteness yeah. to think that this is the highest type of white people? Miss Ellen might have still been alive. She could, could have been in that meeting. Yeah. 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 Well, that is very true. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that before. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but no, I, I'm not trying to be an apologist for Washington, and I'm not saying his is the right approach. I'm just saying that this is one of those issues where I think we have to give grace to anybody mm-hmm. who's advancing a solution. Yeah. Anybody who's attempting to bring change in, I think, has to be, okay, we're going to disagree on methodology, but I appreciate that you have the same goal that I do. Um, And I think that you see that in the relationship. If you, you know, you read Washington, you read uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, (laughs) <laughs> Go with the boys. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep throwing different pronunciations yeah, like, like in I'm gonna, there. I'm gonna find the third way. I, I'm, I am. You I, can't that's say exactly the boy. That's racist. <laughs> yeah. Why you calling him the boy? Huh? Why you gotta be a boy? Why can't he be the man? Yeah. Yeah. That that was a, a moment of silent prayer there. You know, <laughs> Lord help me. Um, 
but yeah, I, I do think that you read Douglas, you read Washington, you read all of these different perspectives, but they all are saying the same thing mm-hmm. and or wanting the same thing. They're just disagreeing about how to get there. And yeah. I think that in the church today, what we're going to find is nobody that I know of in the church who claims the name of Christ in a credible way uh, is saying black people are inferior to white people. Nobody in the church is saying unless you go. To he, he qualified. He said credible. that he knows of. Oh. He said he said that he knows yeah. of, and okay. he called them credible. So yes. he's he so narrowed the scope. Yeah. I did narrow the scope <laughs> out of the twenty people. No, but I think that there's this desire, this yeah. recognition yeah. for the equality of the races. Right. There's this there's this recognition in our world. We need this. Hundred percent. There's just disagreements on how to get there. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what I don't want people who are listening to this to take away is, oh, if I disagree with these three guys mm-hmm. about the right way to go about it, mm-hmm. I'm the enemy. Yeah. No. 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 Not, not, a, not in the slightest. No. And so I would say the same thing for Washington. Like, okay, you, you're joking about he's my least favorite, you know, that. that no, I'm not joking. He really is my least favorite black leader. No, no, no. But <laughs> like, your least favorite? Of all the black leaders. Even Marcus yeah. Garvey? But I liked him more, yeah. But okay. you're saying you're not saying he's ill-intentioned. I, like I said, I believe he's in heaven right now. Yeah. I believe he's a brother in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. But he I believe that he was he was sincere in his beliefs. He was not a hypocrite. Which he was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. Yeah. Do you think his do you, ooh, do you think he did harm? Yes. Okay. That's I do. That. Because do you think his 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 ways of going about things put us as black people back? I don't think it put us back. I think it delayed. It slayed, it I think delayed. I think I think it slowed it. And but again, I don't think any of it was intentional. Right. I think that he, I, I I don't think he was a bad person. When right. I say my least favorite black, you got to realize too is that that's a very small collection of people because by and large, a lot of the influential, a lot of people who could have been influential were killed off early in life. Right. I mean, there's plenty of people. We're, we're learning more about in different names now because of how right. history is progressing and, and whatnot. So we're learning about people like, wow, there was a guy who was in a small town, did this and this and this. Mm-hmm. Man, if that guy stayed alive another five years, it'd have been something. Like, right. So it was, it's a very limited pool, a very, very limited pool. But also I am, it's because of my own personal bias of where I sit on how I feel about intellectual things and how I feel about work, how I feel about about um, just society in general. There's many, many, many reasons why it is that I say no. And on top of all that, my allegiance, as it were, to the group that is Dubois and NAACP and all those other things, like says, all right, well, I mean, you can't you can't be for both. They may no. have had the same ends, yeah, but it really gonna, is it really is a one or the other. You're going to land on a different on this yeah. methodology or this methodology, and that's I guess bringing it to yeah. today again just so we don't miss that, is when we have people who are saying to us, why are you talking about this? Why, you know, or or would say to me, Brandon, why are you sitting as a white guy having this conversation? Mm -hmm. If we would just quit talking about it, this problem would go away. And I would say, I disagree with you methodologically. Right. But I can agree with you that we are still seeking the same goal. We went through the problem. Because that, that's yeah. a question I have is that that same methodology mm-hmm. that Booker T. Washington had, that, that same philosophy of how to handle the, the situations in our country, is still alive today. Yeah. Yes. And, so, and, yeah. and what you said, why are we still talking about today? Why can't people just put their heads down, work hard, mm-hmm. and the problems go away? Well, that's the exact same mentality that Booker T. Washington had, yeah. and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. It took the methodology of W.E. Du Bois slash Martin Luther King slash civil rights and slash what we're going to talk about next. It took lynchings. Yeah. It took 
really bad things to happen. And Frederick Douglass said this, without struggle, there can be no progress. And I think what Booker T. Washington was trying to do was have progress without struggle. Yeah. Mm. And that did not work. If, if it wasn't, we had to get to the point where you had people like Malcolm X and Huey P. Newton who were standing there saying, all right, I'm an American citizen. I have a right to own guns. Yeah. It took that yeah. <laughs> to begin to start having serious conversations. Because, I mean, Washington yeah. also had the right to sit there and say, and we're going to police our campus with armed black men. Yeah. And he never did. Right. And there's a reason why he never did, because he knew, well, that could cause some controversy. Let's, right. Well, eventually we got to the point where people were saying, you know what? Well, if you're going to police your neighborhoods with people yeah. with guns, let's do it too. Yeah. If you're going to defend your church, we're going to defend our church too, especially mm-hmm. since ours are being blown up. And let's be honest, when, when, when violence happens, it gets people talking. Yeah. I mean, when we went through the, um, the, the different racial incidents of, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, all of these, you know, unarmed black men and all these police, you know, what we call brutality and things like that, it started protests. It started marches. I remember being in Clarksville and they had a protest on a Wilma Rudolph Boulevard. It lit up social media. What is going on? When yeah. can we talk about this? Maybe we all need to come together. But it wasn't on Exit 11. Yeah. Right? I mean, people were, they were, they were afraid that it was going to spread. Yeah. They were afraid that it was going to come in their neighborhood. So now let's talk. Let's discuss. Let's open up the airwaves. Let's, let's sit down. Why can't church leaders come together? And when things are not good, let's talk civilized. Yeah. But when there's no problem going, why are we talking about it? Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, minorities, we have a long memory. And, and I think that's one of the issues that a lot of people deal with is that you have issues that never got resolved, rarely get talked about. And so when they continue to come up, people say, why is this an issue? And it doesn't well, become an issue until have, bad things happen. I was thinking how you said they have a long memory. It's easy to have a long memory when you're being constantly be traumatized. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's, that's a large part of it. Um, one interesting point, uh, I think it was mentioned in here, when Washington came to town was right around this time. Um, what is it right? No, 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 I'm thinking about a different person. Yeah, different, it's the next part, post letters. Yeah, sorry, post letters. I'm going to deal with post But I did want to talk about what's coming up next week because I hadn't realized that until I was rereading this chapter. Um, August 8th. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Is, when we, is when they celebrate emancipation which Day is so weird. in this part of, of, of Kentucky, like right? yeah. yeah, we've got a lot of days, right? Yeah, so we've got what well, we've got June nineteenth, yeah. right? Which is Juneteenth, which is a Texas thing. We, it's, we, a, it's a Texas thing, but it's the one that got that's the one that got federal the holiday. Yeah, it Texas. Is. And then we've got Fourth of July, which is Independence oh, Day, <laughs> and then we've got August the eighth, which yeah. is a sense the Freedom Day for Western Kentucky. Yeah, so Kentucky, especially. And yeah. so, do we celebrate all three? I. I, I don't know what I'm doing about uh, August 8th this year. I mean, I got work that day. We got staff meeting. We got staff meeting. <laughs> so, should we, should we do a special so we with your actually, prayer staff <laughs> so, so, we actually took the step of saying, hey, uh, you know, there's a list of holidays that the, the church observes. It's in our personnel handbook, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the personnel committee said, we're, we're adding Juneteenth. Awesome. Maybe we need to talk about adding August 8th. Oh. Juneteenth is a national holiday. Now. Yeah. So right. You can't go backwards on that one. But June, I mean, but August the 8th, that's, you know, a lot of people, I didn't know that until I moved to Kentucky. Never heard of it until the last two years. I didn't know about it until last year when we scheduled the church fellowship for August 8th. And somebody said, well, we may not be able to get the, the park that we were trying to rent out because I think they do a big emancipation thing that day. I was like, 
why that day? And here it is. Yeah. I'm learning is. more yeah. again. Yeah. And also, it's the day where Andrew Johnson released his slaves, which you know, I don't like Andrew Johnson. He was a Tennessee governor. <laughs> he was, he, 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 made, was he makes your list? He was a bad president. Too. Well, not a fan. Not a fan. Well, so the obvious thing is that I wanted, I guess that can be a short bridge to the, the Posted Brothers. Um, because that's a family that's very important in the history of this town. We talk about, you know, Washington came here, important sure. black leader, national level. Posting Brothers, um, you got the one, was it Ted? Ted, who, who's yeah. nationally known. He's what, the, the, the godfather of black journalists, I think you call him? Yeah. yeah. That's what it says downtown. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah. Um, but his brothers are the ones who influenced him. And so they're talking about how they started a newspaper. Um, was it the... What page are you? Um, 141. Um, the Hopkinsville Contender. Um, so there's no copies of it. Yeah, I, I, that's that's a whole other frustration of mine. Like, how's that possible? Nobody saved nothing. <laughs> did they not save nothing, or did nothing get burnt? Like, <laughs> what? I don't know. This is or D. I, I mean, that's All just the above. Anyways, anyway, so um, the the we're gonna towards the the end of the middle that middle paragraph there in one forty one. It says the Poston Brothers' protest against discrimination sprang from an intense race consciousness and a determination to act on it. They sought the kind of black empowerment that not only provoked white opposition, but also, in all probability, frightened numbers of black people in Hopkinsville. Giving up on a facade of racial amity for the sake of accommodation to social inequality, the postings assuredly did not wear the mask. Um, and then I wrote my little margin. Uh, sounds like my kind of people. They were not making friends and influencing people. <laughs> but, but so, like, so here's here's contemporaries to Washington that are essentially like a, crit a critique against his view. They said, no, the solution is we're going to make a newspaper and we're going to boldly print our opinions about what we should do. Um, their newspaper was talking about how it stopped being printed because they they were protesting a World War One veteran parade. Because in the parade, they said, black soldiers march in the back, march in the back. And they're like, no, that ain't right. And the newspaper got shut down for that. Uh, where no longer would people print their newspaper in town. Um, they go on to inspire their brother, who national acclaim and all that. Um, but I think it does, it's, it's an interesting thing. Like, they stood up. And as he says, which is true, it didn't just scare white people. Like, the black people of Hoptown probably like, you guys need to sit down and be quiet. You're going to get us all killed. Like, and what is this, 1919? You got a book that you talk about us reading. Exactly. That's an important it's year, it's 1919. Important year. That was this, a red summer. There's a lot of things going on. Yeah. I mean, this is this is not a small thing for them to say, yeah, we know they might lynch us, but who cares? Because that was really happening. I mean, I think it was in the year 1919, you had 20 plus, 25, almost 30 racial incidents or racial riots. Um, even in, uh, actually on the other side of the state, you had Corbin, Kentucky. And in Corbin, Kentucky, yeah. around, I think it was the same year, 1919, um, there were a, an encampment of African-Americans that were just outside the city of Corbin. And they were there to work on the railroads and different things. Well, there was a couple of guys who went in town. They got in a, a little, not even a brouhaha, but they, they got into a, an argument with a couple of the white guys. Well, the drunk white guys went and got a whole bunch of other white folks, and they gathered up all of the African-Americans, about 300, they gathered up the men, women, and children, put them on a train going south, and sent them to Knoxville. And that was Corbin, Kentucky. That was also a little known fact about them is that's where uh, uh, KFC got started. Yeah. Yeah. Kentucky Fried Chicken. 
Yeah, that's where that's, really? that's, where, that's where KFC's from. But the first KFC location was open in Salt Lake City, Utah. It probably was, but he first started making the chicken in a diner. Yeah. Yeah, Cor- yeah. Corbin has station. Corbin's the home. Okay, see. They have a sign that says Proud Moments in History. Yes. Yeah. And Race Ride. Right. Yeah, that's right. KFC and Race Ride. There you go. Yeah, it's just that slogan's not gonna work, man. Probably not. It no. doesn't ring. They still have a problem understanding why there's not many African Americans in there. They just don't understand. Probably gonna get the old Well, all right. I wanna start a church in Corbin. <laughs> Multi. How does your wife multi-ethnic church? Exactly. We went through that. Amazing. I've yet to go through. We went through quick. I, I've been, I'm like, well, so well. On that, on that part, I want to just to bring it back full circle before we close out this episode, as it were. Um, the the end of the chapter we're talking about this newer bondage and deeper shame. Mm-hmm. I obviously I have I've shared my opinion on why I think that Washington's views helped to solidify that. Um, but what 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 do you guys think? Do you think that, I mean, I can get saying, well, we're scared. Like we talked about one of the other episodes, like realizing hundreds of years of, of slavery and essentially indoctrination on this way of looking. Um, but at the same time, there are people who do things differently too. Like, is this, did that hurt more than it helped? When you say, did that hurt? Did, did, did Washington's pacifist, you know, I'm just going to, what did he say? He said something like, um, acquiesce. Like, did that, did that hurt more than it helped? Um, and I'm, I'm going to say, like, let's look at it this way. Pretend that Reconstruction era, Jim Crow is on the rise, and black people across the nation say, no, nah, we're not putting up with this. Mm-hmm. Period. There's, there's no, this is no discussion. You two, this is equal. Or I guess we're having civil war in part two. Um, would that have been better, knowing now what we know now? Would that maybe have resulted in a more unified nation than the long, slow process of well, let's just ride this out and maybe we'll eventually get better? You go first, Brandon. I know it's not it's, fair to do that to history. I know it's yeah, not yeah, fair, yeah, but yeah. I'm saying take aside the fairness. What do you? What do you? What do you think? Has war ever accomplished peace? I would argue no. I would argue no, based on the New Testament. And I don't think that that is, that is the way to transformation and change. I think that Washington had a, a vision for how this could happen. Others had another vision for how it could happen. But both of them were hampered. I don't think, I don't think you can lay the blame at either methodology's feet. Both of them were hampered by the fact that there were those in society who had a plan for a different direction. And so... It's not like it was like, hey, here's one path forward. Everybody agrees. We try this one. Or here's another path forward. Everybody agrees. We try this one. It was, hey, here's a black guy with an idea for how to move forward. Here's a black guy with an idea for how to move forward. And here's some white people in power who aren't going to let either one of these happen. And Is that fair to say? I don't know. I kind of disagree. I mean, when you look at, okay, so Civil War is over in 1865. Okay, then immediately Reconstruction phase starts to go into effect, even though in Kentucky it meant a little something different than it did in the lower southern states. But you see something that had never happened before. You see momentum. You see the vote beginning to give African-Americans power. You see African-Americans in Congress all throughout the state and in Washington, D.C., and you, we're, we're on the tail. This was, we're talking about 1909. This is right before World War 
one. But what you're seeing is some inertia, some energy in this reality that African-Americans can be equals. And so when Booker T proposed his ideas, it was slowing down that momentum. And, and really what it did was when World War I was over, right around 1918, 1919, we see an, an, an emboldened African-American population that now has been taught that they can be equals in the battlefield. They know how to use guns. They were treated as equals on other nations, and they know what equality feels like being in France, being in different places. And they come back, and they see that they're 30, 40, 50 years behind where they were, yeah. and they realize that we have been treated wrong, and we know what it feels like to be treated right. And I think if we stayed on that same trajectory after, after the Civil War, going into Reconstruction, and if those, the methodology of, of W.E. Du Bois was implanted in place, there would have been some struggle. But I think what it would have done is the, the struggle that was eventually fought in the 60s, it would have happened faster and it probably wouldn't have lasted as long. And we would be further, we, I say we as African-Americans would have been further along where we are today versus where we, where we would be if we did things the way we did things. I, I, I will say this, um, and then we'll end off this episode. Um, I'd say that we definitely agree that if only the church had been the church. Because um, I hear what you're saying about violence, war has never solved problems. Um, I'm obviously biased and great what you're saying. Every time the boss to the answer, I agree with But I do think that at the same time, we can all three agree that but if, if the church had stood up, because both of these guys are leading, both these guys claim Christ as their Lord and Savior, both these guys I think are in heaven based off of what I understand about you. But they were both also still trying to lead as Christian men from a worldly way um, and not from a purely biblical way. And had we had church leaders stand up and the church lead on both sides, that would have been truly something on both sides. Well, we're going to end it there. I have no idea what the audience like because I just not realized it. Did that stop before you think on me again? Interesting. So we'll find out what the audio sounds like. We might have figured figure out the entire crap. So, who knows? We'll find out. I said a ton of brilliant things. I'm saying bye to that thing then. And uh, yeah, hit it. I love it. thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of any institution, organization, or corporation. The material and information presented here are for general information purposes only. All persons who participated did so of their own free will and speak for themselves only, regardless of any personal affiliations they may possess. Been Pastoring Through Some Hard Times is a production of Salt Light Love Ministries, all rights reserved.
Thank you.